WTOP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And Bill, we are uh, I'm very excited about our next guest. I'm very excited about talking about the book that he has authored, the, uh, the tome that he has offered. But uh, you and I were talking before the, we went on the air about um, how timely it is in terms of Northampton's redesign and redesign of downtown about Main Street, travel lanes, parking lot. Um, and this gentleman, Daniel Dane, is an attorney. He's a land use attorney who is an expert in real estate and related matters. He has taken the time to read over 265 books, apparently, and over uh, 500 articles to learn about the history of the city uh, which he uh, was born in and which he practices in. Boston, Massachusetts, which he says has the most important history of any American city, yet its history has never been given the comprehensive treatment that it deserves until Daniel Dane sat down uh, after, uh, in, in, what, between 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock in the morning over years to write the history of Boston. Welcome, Daniel Dane. It's uh, so great to be on. Really appreciate you having me. Uh, really appreciate your coming. So, uh, Bill, we were talking before we went on the air about the history of uh, Boston, the book by Daniel Dane, and what we might ask him, what we might learn from him in terms of Northampton's redesign. Yeah, I'd love to know from this, from from your book, I'd love to know this. Uh, Boston has managed to preserve its history uh, in its architecture, in its insane street non-design, uh, in a lot of its downtown, and yet become a very modern uh, 21st century city all at the same time. It has certainly had its disputes, but it has many neighborhoods. It's a really interesting, in many ways, success story, notwithstanding all of its issues uh, and controversies. And I'm wondering if you agree with that, that Boston is a successful city, and if so, what has been the secret sauce that has allowed it to prosper? So, I mean, you're getting to my professional interest, which is what makes cities successful. So as you mentioned, you know, I'm a practicing attorney with a land use practice. I represent developers. And so what I spend my time thinking about is, you know, what makes cities successful? If I'm going to advocate on behalf of my clients, if my clients want to do a project, I need to be able to articulate on their behalf why a particular project is going to benefit the city. And in order to make that argument, I need to understand, you know, what are the formulas that make for places that people want to spend time in. And, you know, in my book, I, I describe periods where Boston has gone through periods of great success and, and real failure as a city. And I call those periods high urbanism or low urbanism, when people want to live, work, play, study, visit, shop in a particular city. And I, I was writing specifically about Boston, but by but the conclusions I draw really apply much more broadly to both small and large cities around around the country as well as internationally as well. Uh, and I draw the conclusion that what coincides with successful cities is what I call the three Ds: density, diversity, and good urban design. And what that means is, I'll start with the design part or architecture. You want, to, you want to create those spaces, social infrastructure, that will bring lots of people together from diverse backgrounds with different ideas um, to exchange those ideas. And that what the social science tells us is through that alchemy of different people from different backgrounds coming together in spaces to talk about challenges or problems, 
that that is where the best decision-making comes from, and that's where innovation comes from. And we've learned that innovation is vital to cities that are vibrant and successful. And so uh, there are periods when cities get that and embrace it, and they do very well, and there are periods of time when cities reject that and, and uh, you know, have bad ar- architecture and, and uh, retreat to tribalism where they're not listening to each other and, and have low-density policies, and cities tend to fail when that happens. Um, and that's, a, that's a, a broad lesson, I think, that could be applied to lots of different places. I'd be interested to know whether when you talk about getting people together in a space, whether you mean that in a room to discuss things or in a public space to be together, or both? I mean, I think it's all of it. Um, and, uh, the, you know, it's a very present issue right now in, in the post-pandemic era. And social distancing, in a lot of ways, is the complete athema, uh, anathema of successful cities, right? Moving people away from each other, which is exactly what we don't want to do. Um, we do know that that through crowdsourcing and, and other ways, people who are very remote from each other can exchange ideas and come up with better solutions as well. Um, but you know, the lessons that were taken, say, from Silicon Valley in the 1990s is that creating those spaces with both intentional and unintentional interactions are where people exchange ideas and come up with with better ideas. And so it can be very intentional spaces, you know, creating, uh, you know, company spaces where, where different employees from different backgrounds come together. But, you know, we've also learned that it can be coffee shops and bookstores um, and different forums that where people come together and listen to each other. And through that process, better decisions are made. And by innovation, I don't just mean uh, research and development for, for companies, although that's certainly a big part of it, but innovation and the way we organize our, ourselves, innovation in, in culture and the arts, sports innovation. Um, there's been tremendous innovations in the way sports teams are organized over the last 30 years. Um, and so the the trick for cities is how to create those spaces where that innovation happens most successfully. And when cities do that well, they tend to prosper. And when t- cities don't do that well, they tend to stagnate. So... I would love your perspective on this, uh, Attorney Daniel Dane. WeWork uh, just went bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic uh, predicted that people would never go back to shopping in stores, that everything would be purchased, not everything, but many th- more things would be purchased online. And yet what we've seen post-pandemic is there's a hunger for people to be in stores, to be together, to have human interaction, that there actually is this gnawing need for people to have the things that a city, a well-constructed, well-designed city offers. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I mean, you pick up on a number of different themes. The WeWork bankruptcy, you know, is is really, really interesting because I'm actually a big believer in the benefits of co-working spaces. The notion that generally when traditional office leases, there was a minimum number of square square footage that a, a landlord would be willing to provide to a tenant. And so if you're a small startup company and, and a landlord won't, won't uh, lease space for less than, say, 2,500 or 5,000 square feet and you got to sign a seven-year lease, that just doesn't work for a two- or three-person startup company. So it was very difficult to, to create those spaces where people could work together uh, in startups. And the, the, the WeWork model, and they weren't the ones to invent it, what WeWork brought to the table was really, really good design, creating spaces that people wanted to be in, but, but the model existed longer. Um, the, the idea was is that on a square 
foot basis, the rent would be much higher than in a traditional office. But you could get, you know, 200 square feet or 500 square feet, and you were, and it was a month-to-month commitment. And so that really created spaces where um, uh, you could find opportunities to conduct business, to have, to, to make business transactions that otherwise would have been closed to people. That, you know, if you ever went into a WeWork space or Work Bar or some of these other co-working spaces in Boston, Cambridge Innovation Center. Um, uh, all in one space, you would find accountants and bankers and, and just all kinds of people with different ideas and different companies, and they'd come together and exchange ideas. And it was a really exciting exciting thing, and it was really fantastic for the businesses. The, the two flaws in the WeWork model, one was just way too aggressive uh, expansion and very expensive leases, and then the problem of, of month-to-month uh, uh, membership terms was really good for the companies, but when membership falls, for instance, during a pandemic, um, you know, if you're not going to come in, if you have a seven-year lease, you still got to pay rent. But if you have a, a month-to-month, month-to-month membership, and there's a month or two where you aren't, you're not going to come in, you don't pay for the membership those months. So, I think the WeWork model was a really, really important and good one overall for an economy. But as a business model for a successful company, there, you know. There was both the trick, the problem of the month-to-month membership in the face of a pandemic, as well as just bad business decisions by WeWork in particular in terms of overexpansion. So, land use attorney Daniel Dane, I would like to bring you back to the question of space and use of space in cities, because that is the issue that is roiling Northampton today. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on the uh, congruence and the you uh, and the importance of uh, open space, bigger, larger sidewalks, where uh, cars fit into the future of cities, how much cities need to accommodate bicycles and pedestrians, and or whether that's a utopian vision uh, that really is not realistic. What's your view of those issues? I don't think it's a utopian vision that's not realistic. I think these are hugely important for creating spaces that can bring people together successfully. And there's a lot of scholarship on it. One of the most important books on the topic is called The Walkable City by Jeff Speck, who's based in Brookline, and is a real interesting urban thinker um, about how to create those spaces that get people out of their cars and walk around. And it's so important for the success of the businesses. It's so important for how people interact with each other. It's really important from a carbon consumption perspective and moving away from some of the the bad decisions that were made in urban planning that were designed by traffic engineers. And when you make decisions by a traffic engineer, everything's about trying to move traffic in a certain way. But but traffic planning lost sight of the fact that that traffic is just uh, a means to get to something else important, which is getting people to places that they want to be. And so we we designed these spaces with one-way streets and lots of of travel lanes, uh, and cars move very fast and became dangerous for pedestrians and bicyclists. In fact, what we've learned is that you can slow cars down, but by um, creating spaces where you don't have to switch lanes as much, cars actually may drive more slowly but get to their destination more quickly because there's less disruption. So much of traffic is actually created by switching lanes, and once a car switches lanes, the car behind them hits their brakes and they hit their brakes. And if you if you have traffic move more slowly and more efficiently, it actually you can get to the destination quicker, but in a much safer way for pedestrians and bicyclists. And we realize that it's not just about moving cars through a space. It's about creating those, those spaces where people want to be. Um, 
and and building densely in urban centers, both larger cities and smaller cities, it's really one of the most important things we can do for climate change in terms of carbon consumption because we know two things. One, that multi-use buildings are much more carbon efficient than single-use and single-family homes in that you get carbon recapture, essentially, by having spaces next to each other. Uh, your air conditioning in the summer, there's a little bit of leakage, and in a multi-tenant building, that leakage helps air condition or cool down the spaces around you. In a, in a For instance, in a single-family home or a single-use building, that leakage ends up just going out into the air, and so it's very inefficient use of both heating and cooling. Um, as well as the fact that when you're in places where people can walk and get out of their cars, the use of, of carbon is, is much lower. And so we fell into a little bit of trap in, in terms of sort of designing what we thought were environmentally sensitive buildings that were that were isolated. And so the building itself might use less less carbon. This is something that was happening, you know, up to the 90s. The building itself might use less carbon, but if everyone has to drive to it, the car, the, the per capita carbon consumption is much much greater. And so by locating businesses, you know, offices and retail and where people live all close to each other, people get out of their cars, they walk, or their commutes are much shorter, uh, and they come together in these spaces that help create innovation in vibrant places. And what we've learned also is that, is that while people may like, and this is a point you were getting to in an earlier question, while people might like the convenience of, say, shopping online, it makes people really happy when they go to a really great independent bookstore uh, or a coffee shop or a good restaurant. People like that, and they feel energized by it. And having some density around urban centers or downtowns really creates the, the pedestrians and the people who will shop in these areas. And so, you know, I think we want to encourage that. And by building more densely close to downtowns, it means that we're not building in a low-dense, high-carbon usage places. And that's really where we should be building. We should be building in, you know, close proximity and high-dense areas and not building in areas that we're eating up open space and being very car dependent. Well, Attorney Daniel Dane, an author of A History of Boston, you may not know it, but you just inadvertently, there might be a parade in downtown Northampton when the redesign is finished to celebrate your uh, We'll call it Dane Street, Dane Center, (laughs) (laughs) Dane Boulevard. these, These issues are hugely important from both creating successful cities as well as taking on the great challenges we face today, such as, you know, affordable housing and climate change. Uh, and, and, you know, to tackle climate change, one of the ways we could do it is to get people out of their cars and to live in ways that, that consume less carbon. And I think that that means density. Well, let me shift our focus just a little bit. You, you contend that Boston has the most important sit- history of any American city, and I certainly understand why you contend that. But what brought Daniel Dane to write this comprehensive 800-page, extremely sweeping history of Boston, uh, what made you do this? I mean, it comes out of the things that we've been talking about, which is, you know, I represent clients who, are, who want to build buildings in cities. And when my clients make decisions to, you know, if my client wants to build a new office building, you know, that could be a 47-year process from when they first come up with the idea of building it to when it opens. And uh, they're essentially making a bet as to the future, which is when the building opens, there'll still be tenants there who, who want to who wanna lease the, you know, office tenants who want to lease it, or if it's a lab building, lab tenants, or if it's residential, residential, you know, people who want to live in their, in their spaces. And so Boston, you know, I'm talking about my clients who are in the city. 
Boston's been in this period, as I mentioned, that I call high urbanism, when people want to live, work, play, study, shop, you know, visit, um, study in the city. Uh, but we can take that for, you know, I think too often we take that for granted that that's just going to continue. And I grew up in Boston in the 1970s and 1980s when the best word to describe, or two words, I guess, to describe uh, Boston at the time was basket case. Um, Boston was in a, a steep period of decline. The Harvard economist Ed Glazier uh, has written that in the 1980s, three quarters of all homes in Boston were worth less. The market value was worth less than the cost of construction. So if you built a new home in Boston in the 1980s, the day that you put it on the market, it was going to sell for less than you had just spent to build it. And that's because people were fleeing the city. In 1950, the U.S. Census said that the population of Boston was 801,000 people. In 1980, the population of Boston, according to the U.S. Census, was 520,000. So the city lost almost 300,000 people in three decades. And so I realized that, you know, cities go through these periods of success and failure, and we need to be intentional about cities today if we're going to keep them as successful cities. And so trying to understand that, the swing back and forth between success and failures of cities is, is what made me, you know, what motivated me to want to do research on the city. And then it turns out I just thought the, the history of the city was incredibly fascinating. Um, and so I dug in and wrote a, a general history that addresses you know, the obvious sort of political and economic uh, history, you know, the, the American Revolution and the Industrial Revolution and the abolition movement, but also a social and cultural history because I was really interested in questions such as, you know, sports and art and music. To what extent are they benefited from being in successful cities as well as to what extent do successful sports teams or good art or good music or good movies benefit uh, cities themselves? Um, and, and, you know, you know, in both directions, how is how are successful cities uh, relate to successful you know sports and arts and culture? Um, so my interest in all those things is what motivated me to, to do the research. I didn't actually intend to write a book that I would get published until I was about halfway through the project. I just was doing the research and writing for my own personal edification and thought maybe I'd print out my notes and hand them out as holiday gifts. Uh, but once it got to be several hundred pages, I thought, you know, I should really finish this as a history of Boston. What, what, a, good, what, what a good place to end. What a great ad. For your holiday shopping needs, here yeah. we have Daniel Dane's A History of Boston. <laughs> yeah, I, put it, I, I kept going and figured the city's never gotten a comprehensive treatment, as you said. And, so you did uh, it. I think the city deserved it. And, and so I said, well, let me just finish this. And it grew to be an 800-page uh, book with over 200 photographs. Uh, uh, about half of them are historic images, and half of them are the great Urban photographer Peter Vanderwerker provided me his photos, uh, contemporary photos, which are really fantastic. And it's, it's a beautiful book now. I'm quite pleased with it. Daniel Dane, thank you for your book. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. We really appreciate all of the foregoing. A pleasure to have been speaking with you. Yeah, the, the pleasure is mine. I had a lot of fun, and you guys ask great questions. I really appreciate it. It's A History of Boston by Daniel Dane, illustrated by Peter Vanderwerker, and you can get it in an independent bookshop near you. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. What I was told was bone on bone. I was going to have to have knee replacement, and I do not like surgery. Desperate to avoid surgery, Julie decided to check out QC Kinetics non-surgical regenerative treatments. My daughter actually works in a Chapel Hill, North Carolina lab, and I sent her all of the information that I was given. And she's like, oh, mom, this is for you. I've heard great things about this. She's like, you need to try it before ever doing surgery. Julie started the QC Kinetics natural biologic treatments right in the office using her own healing properties to help restore her damaged tissue. I know my daughter was right. Yeah, It's nice when you've got that um, person you can go to who might have a little bit more information, especially on the science of it. QC Kinetics, it's life-changing. Find out if you're a good candidate. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. So, Dan Torres. Can we get some walk-up music for this very special guest we have sitting here in the studio? Or we're just going to have to introduce him, Cole. How does it go? Here we go. Interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. And we have with us the editor of the Daily, executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder and the Athlete Daily News, Dan Crowley. Really, so much news and limited space. We want to talk to you about what happened in these recent elections. We want to get your perspective on how you are covering and how the Gazette in particular, but also the Recorder, is covering the dispute about the downtown Northampton redesign. And I'm wondering if you could give some perspective to us, Dan Crowley, on what you as the editor do when you look at the day's events and say we could fill 14 or 15 or 25 newspapers with everything that's happened today has happened today or yesterday how do you decide what to cover and what kind of prominence to give it what's what's the secret sauce that allows you to look like the paper is doing as much as possible and is doing as much as possible and yet making these very i think tough editorial decisions well, you want to start with that decision making? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, we have there are a number of big running stories right now, both locally and internationally. Our uh, our opinion pages are just 
backlogged with commentary and uh, opinions and letters and columns with what's happening in the Middle East. Um, a lot of people here have connections to people there uh, and, and they're very passionate about what, what's going on. Um, and then you have, uh, um, on the flip side, locally, we have, um, you mentioned uh, did the um, Main Street redesign in Northampton, which is another issue that people are very passionate about in Northampton. And I think we talked a few weeks ago, people outside the city are <coughs> have been chiming in on that as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we, um, we try to, uh, we, we try to get it all in. Um, and I, I know for people who have submitted, uh, pieces for our opinion page is a little bit of a wait. We had an election in four cities and towns and our uh, opinion pages got clogged up for, for several weeks with, um, election related, uh, pieces. So, right. Uh, I, I have people who write me and say, I submitted a, uh, piece, uh, I don't know, three weeks ago or a month ago, yeah. and they haven't printed it yet, and uh, Newman, can you do something to make this better for me? And I write them back and say, actually, no. <laughs> I'm not, I don't do that. Um, but it is, in fact, a decision you have to make about what needs to get in the, more quickly, yeah. and what, I guess, what will likely have more reader interest. Well, when there's news that... that that is news and it needs to get in that that gets in. Um, now we had the March in Washington. Um, it happened Tuesday. We had a few people wising on the paper the next morning while people were marching and we couldn't talk to a lot of them. We had to wait until we were, we got access to some of the local uh, people that participated in that. It's, in, it's on the top of the front page today. Top of the fold. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't, uh, we could have run a wire story or something. We were a local paper. We don't have, we didn't have someone down there on the ground in Washington, uh, um, on Tuesday. So, um, we wanted to give, you know, l let that, um, just simmer 24 hours and then talk to people who experienced the march and, and why they marched. Headline top of the fold in today's daily Hampshire Gazette residents stand with Jewish community. The subhead Rise of anti-Semitism decried as more than 100 joined 300,000 in D.C. March for Israel. A story, a tr human tragedy ongoing today in Gaza, uh, precipitated by, I think, the vicious uh, terrorist attack by Hamas. Um, a tough issue to try to give, I guess, some kind of balance in your, at least in the uh, opinion pages, to this issue. How do you, how do you reconcile, or how do you deal with those differing opinions that come in? I assume uh, by by the dozens. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that's come in, uh, and balance is a good word. We 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 try to. Um, we've had a lot of different perspectives on this published uh, in the paper, um, particularly on the opinion page, um, and uh, it's been encouraging. We've had a few readers um, chime in and said that they've appreciated that, even though they're, they're those are people that can understand that there are other points of view, and they've appreciated uh, seeing that diversity of perspective um that we've published so um that page is the people's page and it's there uh we f uh, we obviously try to fact check as, as hard and as thoroughly as we can i mean we we have to go through these pieces but there's a lot of people putting some historical context into these opinion pieces about what's going on in israel and, and gaza and and uh that takes some time 
um, a, a column could sit for a little bit because we're we've got some red flags with with uh, the facts. Um, so, uh, but but otherwise, uh, it's it's part of our daily work right now. That that issue um, and and how we're having to uh, sift through all of the submissions that we have. I guess that, that's my question, Executive Editor Dan Crowley. Um, which is the historical context you just mentioned, which is where I would like to go, which is you have to decide how much of the history to put into an article like the one that's at the, at the top of the fold in today's Gazette. Um, there is a long history, and there's a lot of history that you could put in there, and somebody's got to weed through it, you as an editor or those who make the decision. Yeah, there's a few of us that have to do that. Yeah, yeah. how hard is that? Um, it, it's, it's really just, it's more, it's more time. I mean, how much, you know, it's, it takes time. Um, and, uh, certainly we're as a staff, some of us coming up to speed a lot more on, on our history <laughs> with this. So, uh, you know, going through these, these pieces that we get, we, we, we often learn things too. Um, and, uh, that's a, that's kind of a actually a nice part of the, the work that we do. Um, and, um, yeah. We are speaking with Dan Crowley, executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder. I want to ask Dan, and I want to return to this question about letters and this creation of, I think, community on the pages of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder. Today's letters to the editor, City Must Move Forward with Main Street Design, Pained by Return to Fascism, Grateful for Voters' Support. We'll discuss all those issues and people right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The East Hampton Planning Board is giving the green light to a proposed multi-million dollar retail and housing development off Route 10. The board voted unanimously to approve the project at the former Tasty Top site. The 33-acre development would include apartments, restaurants, a gym, learning center, bank, and two mixed-use warehouse buildings. The project would likely take six to eight years to complete, according to city planner Jeff Bagg. The Gazette reports next steps for the project include obtaining approval from the Conservation Commission, which is nearing the end of a 12-month process with the project and plans to vote at its next meeting on November. 27th. The new owners of the Iron Horse Music Hall are giving the legendary venue a facelift and starting a fundraiser to pay for it. The Parlor Room Collective bought the venue from Eric Schur in September and plan to make major renovations to improve accessibility, health, and safety. They also plan on completely revamping the notoriously dingy green room where artists spend time before and after their sets. The Parlor Room Collective Executive Director, Chris Freeman, is asking the community for help raising $750,000. He has already received $73,000 in ARPA funds from the city. A grand reopening is scheduled for May 1st. Redacted reports of a Title IX investigation at the Amherst Middle School will be released to the public. Interim Superintendent Douglas Slaughter announced to the school committee that the reports and two Associated Personnel investigatory reports would be made public following a public records appeal. The reports detail the investigation that began in April after apparent alleged bullying and harassment at the school. Plenty of sunshine today and blue sky and a high of 56 to 60. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 40s, an overnight low of 28 to 34. The warming trend continues tomorrow with increasing clouds and a high of 58 to 62. Some rain on Saturday morning. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. 
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. MusicRewind.com is serving Cafe Culture, 100 songs to enjoy with your coffee. A perfect blend of music from across the globe. Won't you stop and take a little time out with me? Get Cafe Culture today at MusicRewind.com or call 855-798-5556 and pay only $21.98 for this four-CD world music collection. Use promo code CAFE55 to save on shipping. Take the journey with MusicRewind.com or call 855-798-5556. Remember promo code CAFE55 for reduced shipping. This offer is available for a limited time to U.S. residents only and cannot be combined with any other offer. Are you exploring the next step for you or a loved one? Join the vibrant, welcoming Rockridge Retirement Community. Moving to Rockridge is a chance to make new friends, live in bright, spacious apartments, enjoy farm-to-table food, activities, and trips to downtown Northampton and other fun places. Sign on before November 30th and get 30 days free and a waiver of the community fee. For more information, call 413-586-2902 or visit rockridgema.org. Rockridge Community, with everything that matters. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Dan Crowley, executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder and the Athol Daily News. I want to get to the letters to the editor and the opinion page and the decisions that go into what to run and when to run it. But first, I'd like to ask you about and congratulate you, Dan Crowley. Dateline Amherst, this in today's uh, Daily Hampshire Gazette and also covered uh, the Republican newspaper uh, uh, borrowed from you. Here, Dateline Amherst, this by Scott Mersbach. Scott was a busy reporter yesterday. He has this long piece on area residents joined 300,000 in March for Israel in D.C. Here's the piece, Schools to Release Title IX Report, Dateline Amherst. Three Title IX reports and two Associated Personnel Investigative reports looking into alleged transphobic actions by counselors at the Amherst Regional Middle School are being released and published with some redactions by the public school district. Interim Superintendent Douglas Slaughter announced to the school committee Tuesday that the reports would be made public following a public records appeal to the Secretary of State filed by the Daily Hampshire Gazette on October 16th following a public records appeal to the Secretary of State filed by the Daily Hampshire Gazette on October 16th. After the district turned down two requests from the newspaper made in September and October to obtain the reports, congratulations, fabulous investigative reporting. What's next on this story, and how did you accomplish that successful appeal to the uh, supervisor of public records? Well, I think uh, uh, several weeks ago we talked about public records work, and you had asked me about do we do that and how do we do it? And uh, you win some, you lose some. And 
that's 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 pretty self-deprecating. You just got reports that people have been clamoring to see for months and months and months, and Amherst said no and no and no, and we can't, and it's illegal, and we shouldn't, and we can't, and we're liable, and a thousand reasons, and the supervisor said no. It's actually you can do exactly what the Gazette and we on the show have called for: just redact what you have to redact and release everything you can, and that seems to be the decision finally. Yeah, so um, that's the ne- that's the next development in this uh, story. So we've had a ruling by the uh, Secretary of State's Supervisor of Public Records, and um, we I can't talk about everything that we've yet to report, but um, the, 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 it, there was an announcement made this week in Amherst by town officials that um, school officials that that there would be <coughs> material in those reports released. So, and that's uh, again. As you said, um, uh, due to a, a records request that was um, uh, done by Scott Mersbach uh, last month. So the reporters themselves know how to do these public records requests and how to appeal when they're turned down. They just, yeah. they just well, do it. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a team effort. Um, so we have the, and there's records request work that goes on that hasn't seen the light of day yet. So um, y- you know we may we may lose some appeals and. Those don't end up in the newspaper because it's all sort of in the weeds and process stuff. But Do you, Dan Crowley, ask for all you can get or you try to tailor your request to what you think will get you? They're all different. Um, generally, you, will have, uh, you may have better success if you're, if you're more specific and you're not um, asking for the world. Um, and I think uh, in those cases, there's, there's been, you have a higher rate of success when you do that. Um, for example, just generally, uh, we're requesting all emails ever sent from this person to that person, and they've been working in a district for 10 years. You know, it's 10 years worth of email. No, we want the last six months or three months or something like that. Yeah, besides, you're going to get a response that says in part, that's fine, please send us $10,000 right. in order to spend the time zero finding these yeah. items in zero. I think uh, years ago them. we had a request. Uh, they came back, uh, a district came back and wanted thousands and thousands of dollars for, uh, for an email's uh, public records request. So. Yeah, that wasn't going to work very well. Let's turn, if we might, oh, one more question on this, if I might. Uh, the report is expected out today, tomorrow. How quickly will we get, we the public, get to see what we have been denied. We're going to work as fast as we can to get information out. Let me turn, if I might, to the uh, editorial page, the opinion page. Uh, the Gazette no longer, and most paper, papers no longer, do regular editorials. Uh, that, I, that is an a opinion piece speaking for the paper itself. Is that a bygone era now for the Gazette, the Recorder, and most other newspapers? I, I think there's been a pause on that right now, but it's something I think we'd like to uh, return to in the near future. Really? Yeah. So, th- I mean, that's something that I've missed, but it's also something that is part of the uh, fabric of journalism today. Mm-hmm. New York Times does not have an editorial every day. It actually rarely has an editorial. There are many opinion writers, but not very many pieces that are, here's what the uh, editorial stance of the paper is. But the Boston Globe often does, or not infrequently. Right, right. Let let me ask you this. I'd like to go to today's letters. People write a lot of letters to the editor of the Gazette. Um, Today's first 
letter. City must move forward with Main Street redesign. It's signed by 10 or so prominent people in Northampton. I'm wondering if that was part of the reason why it gets the position it does, the placement it does, as the lead letter in the letters section of the Gazette today. Um, is that, was that part of the thinking? No. It's really? Not, no. Wow. You mean because it was published? Because no, because it, because of the names. I mean, I looked at the names. I said, these are many significant names in the yeah. city. And I'm wondering if that plays a part in, 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 in deciding to publish it and to giving it some prominence. So to answer your first question, no, uh, it, the, the writer, the, the fact that these writers are who they are doesn't mean it gets published. Um, we, like I said, we try to publish everything we can that people take the time to write to us and they've got a, a view on something they want to share it with the public <clears throat> as long as it meets our editorial standards um, and, and we're going to publish it. Um, editorial standards being? Well, it needs to be fair. It needs to be civil. It needs to, not, it needs to be addressing issues, not, not making personal attacks on people, that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, w you've seen, I mean, this is, you just happened to pick today, and this is a, a letter that's pro-Main Street redesign. I think on Monday we had a long column by somebody saying Northampton has not conquered New Hampshire. Right. You know? <laughs> Following up and cr being critical of the Gazette's front page story on Concord, New Hampshire and its Main Street redesign. Right. And then the day in between we had a column from, a guest column from the mayor. Yes. Uh, and so... There's a, there's a lot of letters uh, in the queue, and we're trying to get them out, but we need to have a diversity on the page, just like we do on our front page. We, you know, we strive for a mix of news. I don't think people, uh, certain readers don't want to pick up the opinion page, and the entire thing is devoted to a Northampton project. Right, right. Um, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned the authors of this letter. They are Suzanne Beck, Dennis Bidwell, Joe Blumenthal, Amy K. Lane. Andrew Crystal, Patrick Goggins, Al Griggs, Leslie Laurie, and Mark Sullivan. Do you, is there some uh, protocol for when you print all when letters come signed by many people? Some protocol when you're going to uh, uh, print all the names? Because sometimes I think I see signed by so and so and ten others or something like that. Can you tell us what what, what yeah, the protocol if it gets is on unwieldy? The... If you've got 10, 15, 20 names, it, it just becomes too much, and it's it's too many names. I mean, this was this was doable. It's a half it's six names here, I think. The second letter uh, today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, pained by return of fascism, um, I was moved, so I'm going to share two sentences from it, uh, written by Sidney Moss, who I don't know of Northampton on this. Years Veterans Day as a World War II combat veteran. I think about our fight against fascism in the 1940s. I and many other young men risked our lives to protect freedom and democracy worldwide. It pains me to read Bill Newman's insightful recent column, Another Step Towards Fascism, the Gazette of November 4th, about current destructive forces that are shaking up our view of what our country stands for and threatening our values of democracy. That's a a letter that you want to publish because it does comment in this instance um, my column, but because it reflects back on some other pieces that have occurred on the editorial pages or the opinion pages. Tell us about that decision making. Why that letter is something that is of interest and gets well. The... It's timely in a couple of ways, three ways. It, it's uh, it's a it's a veteran writing and reflecting at a time on, around Veterans Day, which we just had this weekend. So it's timely in that way. It's in a very interesting perspective of somebody who, you know, s sacrificed 
uh, to fight fascism. And in our country, we have fascist forces in and around the world right now. That, um, <clears throat> and uh, also commenting on a recent column that was written by you. So I, there was a lot of stuff there that I th- that we felt like uh, let let's get that letter out. Um, and uh, again, when you look at these three letters that we had on the page, was this yesterday? No, this is today. Oh, it's today. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, dealing with elections, Veterans Day, Main Street redesign. So it's, there's a, uh, you know, it's, it's diverse. It's not, not all about one, one thing. Sometimes we will package things together when we have a, um, a critical mass of, of uh columns and letters about a particular issue. Election time is one of them. You see, we'll have a page dedicated to letters relating to the election and stuff. But this was a, 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 a touching letter, and we, we, there was a, a lot going on in there. I was very moved, not just not the mention of me, but the mention of this extraordinary perspective. A World War II veteran, there aren't that many of them still alive. We are speaking with Dan Crowley, executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about those elections right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 and Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. You love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1,000. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with the executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Greenfield Recorder, and the Athol Daily News, part of the Newspapers of New England family, Dan Crowley. Dan, we have been talking about editorial placement, and we've been talking about news coverage. One of the stories that has received 
justifiably, in my opinion, uh, significant coverage in the recorder is the results of the Greenfield mayoral election. And I'm wondering if you could give us your perspective with regard to how to cover the story that I think is difficult for the current mayor, um, but nonetheless needs to be covered, uh, and how you go about assigning reporters and covering what is apt to be an ongoing, really important story, not only for Greenfield, but for the entire region in the coming weeks and months. So tell us about those editorial decisions and your perspective, if you care to share, on the results of the election in Greenfield. And I just, before you answer that, Dan Crowley, I, I just want to point out the recorder, uh, and you had everything to do with this, was uh, sponsored the mayoral debate and the candidates' night, uh, along with WHMP, um, so that gave you a particular perspective on that mayoral race. Yeah. Well, it's always good to have uh, a choice. And for, I think, I think I would say, unless I'm wrong, most voters don't want to go to the polls and, 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 and just be able to vote somebody in with no, no uh, competition or, or, um, or be able to debate the issues beforehand. So, that happened in Greenfield with the, the mayor's race. Uh, there was a city council, uh, school committee. There are some new faces on, on those boards, um, as well as the assessor's office. There's a new assessor. <clears throat> um, but, you know, we, we covered the election like we traditionally would do uh, as, a, as a news organization. And um, I think up there, uh, the kind of the pulse on the ground was... Who, who knows how this is going to go. Uh, so you did not really have an inkling that this election was not going to be close. I mean, I didn't, but no. I thought maybe I'm sitting down here in Northampton. What do I know? No. But you no. didn't either. No, we, don't, we didn't have polls or anything. We've like never that. had polls. Yeah. Um, and uh, now, you know, now the um, – we came back into the follow-up and looked at the results uh, um, of, of how, how the city voted and broke that down a bit. Um, now the story is, what's the transition like? Uh, we've got eight, uh, what is it, six weeks maybe, six or seven weeks. Um, and what's that going to look like uh, between um, transitioning a new mayor and, into that office? And, and um, uh, so we're, we're talking about trying to get some information out about that. I would like to go back to the election itself and have your perspective on a topic we've been discussing on the show a lot, which is these off-year, odd-year elections in which if there are 30 percent, and I think that's about what happened in Greenfield. 29.6, I think. I stand corrected. <laughs> no, just about 30 percent. You're exaggerator, Bill. Yeah, okay. We're going to try, try to keep this more accurate in the future. Listen. We say 30 percent of the people vote and go, that's terrific, isn't that amazing? 30 percent voted. How about 80%? How about 90%? 30% and we say it's a big turnout. People are really engaged. Well, it is by comparison with 17% or 13% in other elections, but it's abysmal as a reflection on democracy. And I'm wondering what your feelings are about that. And in particular, if you have some thoughts on whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to have these municipal elections segregated from all the other major elections that otherwise would occur on even years for the House, the Senate, the President, and so on. Yeah, I, I don't really have strong feelings on that, and I wonder if you have them oh, all... Lumped, I don't either. If you, have them lumped, <laughs> if you have them lumped together, if it's just too much, it's too many candidates, too much research I need to do on all of these races, local, national. 
But I think um, the last the last municipal election, the last mayoral election, I think in 2019 was 49 percent. It was in the 40 percent. It was significantly higher. So for whatever reason, this one was much lower than that last one. Um, that was also a contested mayoral election, uh, and um, it's a it's a big decision. It's four. The terms now are four years. Most of the cities in our area have gone away from that two year, and now they're four year terms. Another year, you're looking at half a decade of being in office. I so, just want to squeeze in one little yeah. other factoid in, in uh, Mary Burns' article about the mayoral debate. She solicited questions from readers. Yeah, I think we got four. That's that, yeah. that's how low the interest was. Well, except that if you were to follow this in terms of what we've, the coverage we've given and that the recorder's given, there was a lot of interest. And we should point out 30% is, in fact, a high turnout for this kind of an election. So on that lack of definitive decision-making and opinion, we're going to leave it. Dan Crowley, executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Greenfield Recorder, the Athol Daily News. Always such a pleasure speaking with you. Really appreciate your perspective and insight. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect, certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Fall. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And there is, uh, it's a very climate-friendly atmosphere in the studio today, uh, thanks to Brian Adams and the guests that you've uh, brought in with you. You know, um, Buzz, one of the great things about living in Western Mass and the Valley um, is there's so much great work and great people doing the work to save the planet. And there's so much to be depressed about and anxious about, you know, from the Mideast to the Ukraine to racial injustice to economic inequality to climate change. It's like, ah! And thank goodness that we have these wonderful people and these wonderful activists really doing the work out there. Because if not, I don't know, I don't know what, what we would do. We've got two of those activists with us today, Susan the Bears from Climate Action Now, and Naya Tanerowitz from Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. And the conversation today is about climate justice and climate action and doing something to save the planet. So uh, welcome, Naya and Susan. Thanks for being on the show. Lovely to be here. Uh, and uh, um, let's begin with 
um, this whole issue of, of climate action justice and how justice fits into this conversation about climate action. Because generally we think about we're, sto you know, we're stopping fossil fuels. That's what we've got to do. Um, let's start with you, Naya, uh, from Springfield. Uh, justice, how does justice fit in from in the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition? So historically, you know, when the environmental movement started, it was very white. It was really not receptive to the realities that people of color were facing, that indigenous people were facing. So uh, there, a bunch of folks got together and created the environmental justice movement that's actually looking at things intersectionally, looking at inequity in relation to the impacts of the climate crisis and the, the impacts of uh, pollution and environmentally damaging projects and where those are cited, which is more often than not in communities of color, in poor communities, in immigrant communities. Uh, so those communities are called environmental justice communities. Uh, and that is the case for Springfield. We're an environmental justice city. Um, and so when we're in Springfield to talk about climate justice, it's tied in with environmental justice of wanting their, wanting our city to not be screwed over because we are more diverse, because we have a lot of minorities. Um, and then, you know, you take that and you apply it to the global perspective of looking at climate change and looking about the impacts of climate change and who's uh, suffering the most, who has the resources to cope and who is lacking them. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the mix of uh, intersections that we're trying to keep in mind and balance out. Could you go back one second? Because if I heard you correctly, I thought you said that Springfield was an environmental justice city. And I think of Springfield as actually an environmental injustice city. Uh, what say you to that? That it's, it's the peculiarity of the term uh, that I, I think that the idea is that, uh, you know, we're focused on creating environmental justice. We're uh, defining ourselves based on, like, this is just the term that's used for communities like Springfield is environmental justice communities. But I think the kind of reason for that is that we are not defining ourselves by the injustice that has been imposed upon us, but rather by the justice that we're seeking. Great, great answer. We're looking at a positive perspective to that. Let's talk about one of these in environmental injustice um, actions that are being taken in both Spring in Springfield. Eversource uh, is our utility, and um, for a lot of us in Northampton, it's National Grid, but Eversource and National Grid are the two big uh, fossil fuel utilities that serve western Massachusetts. Eversource is moving forward with plans to build a new gas pipeline um, that will go r right into Springfield and really impact communities of color in Springfield. Uh, Naya, do you want to continue and talk about that and, and what's going on and how you are involved in trying to stop this pipeline from happening? Absolutely. So we just talked about environmental justice communities. Every single census block in Springfield that this proposed pipeline would pass through is an environmental justice area. We actually mapped it out with all of the different criteria of what makes an environmental justice community. Uh, and it, it the, like the route of the pipeline is going through some of the most diverse, some of the most disadvantaged communities in Springfield. Um, so that's going to bring, if it, is, if it is built, if it does happen, that would bring 
more uh, methane leaks into those communities and worsen the air quality uh, and exacerbate uh, respiratory health and asthma, uh, which we are already, you know, struggling with. We have poor air quality in Springfield. and We're Number one in the state, right, with asthma? Um, of asthma, is that correct? I, I don't know about the figures at this point in time. There was a time, there were two years consecutively uh, that Springfield was the number one asthma capital of the nation. Of the nation? Yeah. Oh uh, I think that was 2018 and 2019. Um, at this point, we are lower on that list, I think, because of a combination of other communities getting worse and Springfield getting better. But we are fighting really hard to improve air quality, to improve, you know, error like quality indoors as well as outdoors to improve our public health. So this pipeline would be increasing pollution. It would increase dramatically the risk for uh, fires and explosions, uh, which is particularly my fear, uh, given that this pipeline would pass within a quarter of a mile of two schools, one of them being uh, Sumner Ave Elementary School and Preschool, which is about 500 feet from this pipeline's uh, most likely route. Naya, why does Eversource want to build this pipeline? What is the what is the point of it? The so when we burn fossil fuels, we release methane, but we also release carbon dioxide, the major greenhouse gas. The move is to stop, you know, uh, the infrastructures from creating more cl- climate destroying gases. Why is Eversource moving forward with this? It is all about money, and it's all about them surviving the transition to clean energy. They've created this narrative about reliability. They're doing a lot of fear-mongering about, um, like, oh, well, what if something happens to Springfield's existing pipeline? They're fear-mongering about a single point of fail- failure as our, of our current existing pipeline that brings in Springfield's gas, uh, which has never... Like it's it's never failed us so far. It has weathered a lot of things, and they could just focus on making sure that it is in the best condition possible, rather than wanting to build a sixty-five million dollar second pipeline. But we know that that reliability narrative is a falsehood, because even if this pipeline were built, there would still be a single point of failure at the Bliss Street Regulator Station in downtown Springfield, where both pipelines would terminate before being distributed uh, to all the houses and buildings of the Springfield service area. So something could happen to that station and we would lose all our gas anyway. And that station is 30 feet from a very active railroad on one side and 30 feet from a high-speed roadway on the other. Naya Tenerowitz, I every time I hear you speak, you're just such a great educator about these really important things. But I, I've got a question for Professor Emeritus Brian Adams, who taught environmental science for so long. This question of disparate uh, impacts on various communities. I know that you taught the science. You taught what greenhouse gases do and why and what has to be done to preserve our planet. But it, should that be part of the science curriculum, talking about the disparate mm. impacts on various communities of climate change? You know, one thing I think we learned from, um, at, at least I learned, from the Women's March is this concept of intersectionality. I'd never really heard that before, how all issues are related together. We can't talk about the science of climate change without talking about the impact that greenhouse gases have on communities of color. So I think it's, you know, when we talk about science, it's not just pure science. It's the impact that science has on people and uh, the disproportionate impact that climate change has on communities of color. So to answer that, yes, yes, if you're teaching science, you've got to mm-hmm. be teaching that. 
Let's switch the conversation a little um, f- to Susan Taberge. Uh, Susan is one of the uh, organizers at Climate Action Now. Um, Susan, maybe we could step back a little bit from this pipeline thing and just talk about what Climate Action uh, Now does, uh, what, what other activities that you're involved in, because I know you're also involved in stopping this gas pipeline. But talk about some of the other stuff, too. Yes, very much. And um, one of the things I wanted to um, highlight as we segue a little bit to Climate Action Now is that um, we, we have really had an extraordinary history of success in Western Massachusetts in stopping dirty energy projects. I know Buzz Eisenberg, sitting right next to me here, was part of our fight, our successful fight to stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline. We most recently in Springfield were able to prevent a very highly toxic polluting biomass plant from being built in Springfield. And and there's other examples as well. And, the, and those are two huge, huge victories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to stop the pipeline movement, the Kinder Morgan thing was just an enormous undertaking. Yes. As was the biomass plant. Yes. At 12, it was well over 12 years stopping the biomass plant. And I wanted to just highlight some of the strengths we have in our community, that people really do work together. We have lots of folks engaged in environmental justice and climate change issues. And we have been able to build real connection and solidarity across organizations and um, have, I think the other thing that's been really important here is that people are willing to try lots of different things. I mean, the, the enormity and complexity of, of the climate, growing climate disaster, um, Makes it makes it essential that we be willing to be open to lots of ideas, try lots of things, but most important that we're building trust and connection and relationships among each other. And this is where climate justice really comes in and addressing racism. And one of the things that Climate Action Now has really attempted to do from its very beginning is to address issues of racism, which I can say as somebody who's spent a long lifetime organizing, that racism is the thing that over and over again divides and separates organizations and people, creates, um, creates the kind of um, ability to split people so that we can't unite and fight together. And so we have, from our from the very beginning of Climate Action Now, there's been an orientation of, of uh, addressing racism and climate justice. Um, let's pivot to, the, uh, to one of the activities that you're involved in, Susan uh, Taberge. This Saturday, I was looking at the, the, the Shea event. Oh, yes, yes, know, yes. And you are a prosecutor oh my gosh, yes. in, in uh, <laughs> defending the Connecticut River. You want to talk a little bit about that? And, and uh, it's open to the public, right? Absolutely, yeah. open to the public. It's, it's on Saturday at Shea Theater, and uh, it b- begins at 3 o'clock. Um, well, come and find out. There's just... Uh, a great travesty happening um, on the Connecticut River, and it has to do with first light. Um, it's a complex story, but, but what we're framing this all around is this issue of the rights of nature. Does nature itself have rights? And so uh, there's a global movement uh, focused around the rights of nature, indigenous-led movement. 
And a number of other places around the country are at this very time also uh, organizing in the, in, from the framework of that rivers have rights. It's going to be theatrical, it's going to be musical, it's going to be poetic, and... Um, and I'm the prosecutor. You're the prosecutor. <laughs> so, hey. There's a prosecutor in the house. <laughs> yeah. We are speaking with uh, Professor Brian Adams and his incredible guest, Susan Theberg of Climate Action Now, and uh, Naya Tenerowitz. I can never get enough of Naya's uh, advocacy. It's always motivating. We're going to be back and continue our conversation right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Here's another remarkable success story from QC Kinetics. This one from Chad, who hurt his knee at the gym one day, and it just kept on hurting for months. From my high school football and wrestling days, I already had a little bit of damage in there, but this just sent it over the edge. Chad tried traditional treatments with no improvement when he turned to the non-surgical regenerative treatments at QC Kinetics. It was really fascinating how they did their work, and the science behind it was very intriguing, and it works. Extracting the cure out of my own body blew my mind. It's like I'm brand new again. It was fantastic. That's because the QC Kinetics natural biologic treatments use your body's own healing power to restore damaged tissue in your hips, shoulders, back, and knees, providing long-lasting relief. Now I'm back at the gym. I'm 100% feeling great. If you're tired of suffering with pain from arthritis or injury, call QC Kinetics now for a free consultation. Call QC Kinetics 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Are you looking for space to host a private event? The Hangar Pub & Grill has you covered. Our Amherst, Westfield, and Pittsfield locations are perfect for birthday parties, reunions, corporate events, and more. Customizable menu options make party planning a breeze at an affordable price. Enjoy our award-winning wings along with our other in-house favorites. And don't forget the Amherst Brewing Beer. Visit hangarpub.com events to book today. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back, and Professor Brian Adams has a couple of very special guests. We're talking with Nia Tenerowitz from Springfield Climate Justice Coalition and Susan Taberge from Climate Action Now about their activism in terms of preventing the climate catastrophe, uh, this intersectionality of climate justice, and uh, people so impacted, people of color and communities of color so impacted by climate issues. I want to get to this uh, statewide campaign yes. um, to really call for a pause in new gas infrastructure. And by gas, we're talking about natural gas. A lot of people use it to heat their homes. Um, and uh, uh, Naya, can you um, talk, begin talking about this statewide initiatives and, and what Springfield Climate Justice Coalition is doing? Yeah, so this idea actually originated with us as we were, you know, brainstorming about different ways we could stop Eversource's proposed Springfield Longwater Pipeline, since we, there's no 
history of the Energy Facility Siting Board, which is in charge of the permitting process, actually denying a pipeline based on environmental grounds. So we were you know, brainstorming other ways that we could stop this thing. And we came up with the idea of a statewide moratorium. So it would it would stop this pipeline and it would stop any other projects like it around the state that are currently happening or that might happen in the future. I think that this pipeline that Eversource wants to build is kind of the, the front runner. If they succeed, other co- gas utilities will follow and do the same thing and try and, you know, perpetuate our reliance on gas into the future in that way. Uh, so we are, you know, we, we started this campaign for a halt to all new gas system expansions until there is a concrete plan for a rapid and just transition to clean energy. Uh, we have state legislation that says that we need to do this transition. Uh, we have, you know, the the Climate Roadmap Act that tells us that we need to reach net zero by 2050 and reduce our emissions by 50% by 2030. Um, but the regulatory pathways for fossil fuel projects are still wide open. We haven't actually put all the pieces together of how we do this transition. And part of this transition is that we need to put pump the brakes on fossil fuel projects so that we can figure out alternatives to them. So uh, that's the idea. We've got an executive side of it where we are uh, petitioning uh, Governor Healy to uh, use an executive order to create a, um, a halt to gas system expansions. And we also have legislation in the House that would do the same thing. Naya Tanerowitz, how much buy-in is from the neighborhoods that are going to be impacted by this proposal? Uh, we've had a lot of buy-in so far. You know, we sometimes have questions about you know, like, don't we need gas? And isn't it, you know, the, the better, like our, our best option? And it really isn't. Gas in our homes makes us sick. 15.4% of childhood asthma cases in Massachusetts are caused by uh, gas appliances in the home. Uh, gas leaks and gas fires are very dangerous. So there's a lot of, like, lingering propaganda about gas. But once you start to look at the facts and peel things away, people usually are like, you know what? Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're talking again with Naya uh, Tanerowitz and Susan Taberge. Um, Naya and Susan, let's talk about Governor Healy. You mentioned you mentioned her. She has a new, not new anymore, but relatively new climate chief, um, Melissa Hoffer. Uh, how, and let's uh, turn the conversation to you, Susan. How do you rate their work right now? Are they, are they doing... Good job, good job in this. Well, we, um, Climate Action Now and Springfield Climate Justice Coalition have actually been working closely uh, with particularly Melissa Hoffer in the new administration. Um, Again, Melissa Hoffer is the Hoffer climate is chief, the I think. Hoffer is climate chief. Yeah. And I have to say that it's heartwarming to work with her. She, she truly understands... Um, the issues and is not so much a politician as she's she's really kind of one of us in her understanding. It's it's been great. Of course, you know, it remains to be seen. To date, we have been feeling very positive about what's happened. Uh, Springfield Climate Justice Coalition wrote a response to Eversource's draft environmental impact uh, report. And um, we wrote a 16-page 
very footnoted, very um, detailed critique of it. And we were so heartened that the administration drew from our, our comments and our critiques and also a number of other places around the state, including Physicians for Social Responsibility, Conservation Law Foundation had also uh, written letters this way, but they truly named the fact that Eversource had completely dishonored the process of listening to people in the community, of making information available to people, had not at all addressed the environmental justice issues, et cetera. That was a really good sign that Eversource was sent back to the drawing board, has to redo the whole process, has to have authentic meetings with people in the community in person, you know, with making sure there's um, interpreters for all languages that people speak, et cetera. So that, that, was, that felt really, really good. And um, uh, the Healy administration, there's some excellent people. One of the leaders of the climate justice movement in the state, Maria Belen Powers, real, Power, recently came on board. So that's really exciting. Now, it remains to be seen. We have a petition that, that Naya just mentioned, and we, you know, it sounded kind of absurd, but we said, let's get 10,000 signatures, because when we stopped Kinder Morgan, we had 10,000 signatures on our uh, petition, and then we had a meeting with the governor, and we're getting really close. I think last, it's about 8,500, so um, we uh, encourage folks to uh, sign on to that petition. So let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but um, Susan, how can people get involved? How can they sign the, the petition? How can they get involved in climate action now? And Springfield residents, how can they get involved in Springfield Climate Justice Coalition? Um, Susan, you want to start with climate sure. action now? Um, well, I think the best... Um, way to get involved is to go to our website. It's cl uh, Climate Action Now. It's and a wonderful website. Lots of stuff out there. And just wait. We're doing a big transformation of it. So in about six months, it's going to be really gorgeous. But anyway, there's lots of information on it now. It's just going to be easier to access. But anyway, check out our website. And we Climate Action Now holds open, we call them gatherings every month. Used to be face-to-face. -face. Now they're on Zoom. But I particularly wanted to highlight that our meeting on the 27th of September, 7 p.m. Uh, September? Uh, I'm sorry, did I say September? You did, November. Of November. Is, uh, go we're going to have a speaker from uh, Cornell, and the, our speaker is going to be addressing the very dangerous conditions that workers in all kinds of uh, lines of work, I mean, obviously, if you're out on the street um, doing construction, if you're if you're a farmer, if you're a farm worker, but also even teachers and the incredible heat in classrooms. There are so many, um, uh, so many um, dangerous impacts. And so we'll be really focusing on that. And this is the beginning of an effort for us to really partner with labor. So folks can yes. uh, go onto the website Climate and Action access that. And, and, and yeah. please sign up for our newsletter. It, tells you not just what Climate Action Now is doing, but we try to tell people what's happening across our magnificent river valley of activism. And if you go on our website, you will see a way to sign up for the newsletter, and that will give you all the information you need and the Zoom links. Uh, Naya, how about Springfield Climate Justice Coalition? Springfield residents, how can they get involved? So anybody in Massachusetts, first of all, can sign our petition, and you can find the link to that at stopthetoxicpipeline.org. 
Uh, you can find a link to the petition on the first page of that site. Um, StopTheToxicPipeline.org. Yep. And uh, if you go into the section of that website that talks about the Springfield side of things, you'll find my email. You'll find the emails of a, a couple other people who are in, in the leadership of the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. Uh, and you can just shoot us an email and we'll meet with you and, and bring you on board to be part of the coalition. And I think it's really important for people who may not be Springfield or Longmeadow residents to know that this is happening in our neighborhood. And it's really important for all of us, especially in the face of what you're talking about, this disparities that environmental justice seeks to address, that we all join in. GCC Professor Emeritus Brian Adams, you've done it again. These are two incredible activists, uh, with really important messages for us all to pay attention to. Uh, we've been talking with Susan Tabarish from Climate Action Now and Naya Tenerowitz from Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. Uh, the good news is there are people and there are organizations out there doing the good work, um, bringing climate justice and climate action uh, to the forefront of, of what we really need to be doing. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan and Naya. Keep up the good work, and we, we hope to see you here again. Good Thank you so much. We're honored to be here. Good work indeed. Thank you. We're going to be back. We're going to be uh, with Glenn Siegel. We're going to be all that jazzing with composer and guitarist Jim Mattis right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The East Hampton Planning Board is giving the green light to a proposed multi-million dollar retail and housing development off Route 10. The board voted unanimously to approve the project at the former Tasty Top site. The 33-acre development would include apartments, restaurants, a gym, learning center, bank, and two mixed-use warehouse buildings. The project would likely take six to eight years to complete, according to city planner Jeff Bagg. The Gazette reports next steps for the project include obtaining approval from the Conservation Commission, which is nearing the end of a 12-month process with the project and plans to vote at its next meeting on November 27th. The new owners of the Iron Horse Music Hall are giving the legendary venue a facelift and starting a fundraiser to pay for it. The Parlor Room Collective bought the venue from Eric Schur in September and plan to make major renovations to improve accessibility, health, and safety. They also plan on completely revamping the notoriously dingy green room where artists spend time before and after their sets. The Parlor Room Collective Executive Director, Chris Freeman, is asking the community for help raising $750,000. He has already received $73,000 in ARPA funds from the city. A grand reopening is scheduled for May 1st. Redacted reports of a Title IX investigation at the Amherst Middle School will be released to the public. Interim Superintendent Douglas Slaughter announced to the school committee that the reports and two associated personnel investigatory reports would be made public following a public records appeal. The reports detail the investigation that began in April after apparent alleged bullying and harassment at the school. Plenty of sunshine today and blue sky and a high of 56 to 60. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 40s, an overnight low of 28 to 34. The warming trend continues tomorrow with increasing clouds and a high of 58 to 62. Some rain on Saturday morning. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Friday Night Hoops returns to the Mullen Center this Friday as UMass welcomes in-state foe the Harvard Crimson. At 7 p.m., the first 1,000 fans will receive a free rally towel courtesy of Coca-Cola. And if you bring a non-perishable item to benefit the Amherst Survival Center, you'll get a voucher for a value section ticket to the next home game on November 22nd. It's Massachusetts Hoops this Friday at 7. Grab your tickets now at umassathletics.com slash tickets.
When you're going through a tough time and want to talk with someone, talk with an experienced mental health care provider at ServiceNet. Talk therapy, medication management, and other treatment options. ServiceNet therapists and our psychiatry team work together to help you feel better. Having services all in one place can make a world of difference. At ServiceNet, we have your back. Call ServiceNet at 584-6855. The care you need is right here, all in one place, at ServiceNet. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits. There's all that jazz in the valley and in these hill towns, and who better to bring it to us than you, Glenn Siegel? Well, thank you, Buzz. That's very kind of you. Um, our guest today is a composer, band leader, guitarist, teacher, and studio engineer Jim Mattis, who specializes in progressive world fusion, jazz, rock, and improvisatory music. Jim Mattis, welcome to All That Jazz on WHMP. Thanks, Glenn, for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, there are a lot of talented musicians around, but not many of them have invented a new instrument. Tell us about the one that you invented, the Lauritor. Um, did you hear a sound in your head that didn't exist, or did you just stumble upon the, uh, the new instrument? Well, I did sort of hear a sound that didn't exist, but it was inspired by an actual Greek lute, which is called a lauto. So it's tuned. Could you just um, spell, could you spell that for us, Jim Mattis? L-A-O-U-T-O is, is the, is the original Greek. It's an acoustic instrument. It's sort of an egg shaped body. It, it's similar to an oud, uh, and it has eight strings. So mine is basically a, an electric version of that. Um, which I had to seek out this master builder, uh, Rick Turner, who passed away recently, but he was internationally known. He, he, he made guitars for the Grateful Dead and Fleetwood Mac. Uh, so I kind of reached out to him and um, he built it to my specs, but it was very similar to a, an instrument that he had already come up with, was an electric mandocello. So it's kind of, it's got a, a mandocello, for those who don't know, uh, the mandolin family, it's, it's like, it's a bass mandolin. So um, 
I know it's it's kind of confusing, but you have to see it and, and hear it to understand what I'm talking about. It has a, a huge sound. Uh, I'm originally a guitar player, so um, I had to reinvent my whole technique to to learn how to play this instrument, but it's it's still fingers on frets and picking strings, so I was more than halfway there when I when I started it about 20 years ago. It's so intriguing to me. I, I got to admit that, Glenn, your lead-in question uh, was, did you hear sounds in your head that didn't exist? I think a psychotherapist would be very interested <laughs> in the answer, but I love the answer. You create music, you create instruments to produce the sounds that you're hearing in your head. Talk about creativity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, creativity, uh, that's the most important factor in music, I think. Um, I mean, th there aren't any musicians who aren't creative. I mean, that's kind of like goes with the territory. But the the great ones are the the ones who really have the original ideas. Those are the ones that have inspired me and I've aspired to <laughs> to be as much like them as I can. Uh, but creativity, it, it comes from who knows where. Nobody knows. The muse. Uh, you get these ideas and you just you're compelled to follow them and and develop them and that and that's that's how creativity uh, works you know you it, it's it's a lot of work <laughs> it's not it's not you just w don't walk down the street and 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 there it is uh, you know a great classic song you you have to really work at it and develop those that antenna that 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 gets you that those signals. Mm -hmm. So you studied guitar at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston uh, with two of the most famous jazz guitarists working today, Pat Metheny and John Schofield. Mm -hmm. Was your ambition to become uh, a jazz guitarist in the, in that mold, or or did you have a different conception in mind? Well, at the time I was there at Berkeley. Yeah, I was all consumed by jazz, and I, you know, I wanted to be a, a jazz player at that point. But I came to it from rock and roll and from other styles, and I was totally blown away and inspired by those two guys. Um, I was lucky enough to have Matheny as my teacher at Berkeley for one semester, and I feel like that one semester changed my life and it gave me an insight into like okay what makes a great player you know like these both of them Schofield too had just this natural ability to to you know synthesize sounds and, and rhythms and things that I was in awe of and I wanted to develop that um, but I quickly found out that you know being a being a full-time professional jazz guitar player is, you know, it's a, there's, there's a, only a very small uh, amount of space to do that in because jazz is not that popular. And I quickly branched out into all kinds of other territory. Um, but all, at the same time, keeping that, that jazz in, my, in the back of my head and, and always developing it on one level or another so uh, 
I wouldn't call myself a jazz guitar player now or jazz player at all. I, I, I have that influence, but I, I've hopefully developed a lot more, a wider range. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You are very deep into um, music from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, how did you uh, transition to exploring those music traditions? And, I, and before you answer that, I just want to remind our, our listeners that we're talking to Jim Matus from his home in West Chesterfield, Massachusetts, in his beautiful studio, and I'll ask you about your <laughs> studio work uh, in a minute. But tell us about your introduction to uh, music from outside of Western culture. Um, well, being an old guy from the '60s, you know, I think we're all kind of in the same age group. We all grew up with the Beatles, and hearing Ravi Shankar was the first inkling of that for me and then but but i never really took it seriously i never really studied indian music or anything but then again in the 80s i heard uh nusrat fata ali khan and i and i started to get into um kawali music and um also middle eastern music um oud players and and then i finally ended up working with this guy in my studio when I was in Hartford, who was a, a Greek lute player. And that's what sort of, you know, solidified it for me. I, I, I found this instrument, the lauto, and I thought, okay, I can, I can do this for real now. But when I say for real, I mean, I, I can take it seriously. I, I, I never really studied the traditional Greek music or... I studied a little bit, but I never really developed that. I always wanted to do my own thing, man, being a guy from the 60s. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, um, and I, I worked, uh, Glenn, you know Tony Vaca. I, I, I worked with him for about 10 years um, around the valley, and um, he was influenced by African music. So I... I learned a lot about African music from Tony and also Derek Jordan, who was the other violin player in our, in our trio. Um, so I'm, I'm, I've been picking it up here and there over the last 20, 30 years. And um, yeah, if, if you listen to the, the, the records, uh, there's a lot of sounds that are world, world fusion sounds that... Um, that I put into my own, my own compositions. So I'm wondering, Jim Mattis, uh, when you uh, use these instruments that most of us find sort of mystical, we don't really know much about them, but you're a creative guy. Uh, does using instruments from other cultures, sounds from other cultures, compositions that are from other cultures, does that give you new avenues for your own creativity and that's why you want to use it so that you have a new mode of expressing yourself or is it to introduce listeners to other cultures and the sounds that motivate people in those cultures or both I suppose it's both but I think it's the the former that you mentioned um, you know wanting to to put that those sounds and those ideas into my own 
compositions and my own bands that I'm forming and combinations of of people. I I I I I'm, I think I'm pretty good at at putting together bands. <laughs> I've put together so many bands in my life and and I can sort of instinctively tell who's going to work with who, what instrument's going to work with with what and um I use that ability to kind of form these world fusion uh ensembles. Um and you know, it's it's it happens kind of, you know, it, these things happen in, in waves. Like a, a group will, will, will come together and, and will be rocking and will be out there playing. And then all of a sudden something happened. Like one guy will quit or one guy will get a divorce and, and, it, and it falls apart. And then I have to put it back together again. And that's kind of been my whole life is uh, one minor success after another <laughs> that, that totally falls apart. <laughs> that sounds familiar. in the end well mean, meanwhile the fact that you've been able to expand your voice through the use of multiculturalism is just so great and it takes somebody like a Glenn Siegel to just uh, introduce us all to people who have just expanded our horizon we'll be back and we're going to continue our conversation mm-hmm. eavesdropping between Glenn Siegel and Jim Mattis right after these messages mm-hmm. stay with us More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressors that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. 
And we're back. Glenn Siegel is here talking to Jim Mattis, who basically brings the entire globe into our living rooms. Yeah, it's it's great to have you uh, in the Valley, for sure. Um, speaking of the Valley, you've worked with some of the most accomplished musicians in our area, including uh, percussionist Richie Barche, uh, Doug Granary, and Tony Vaca, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, tell us a little bit about those collaborations and how you go about making connections mm-hmm. with other area musicians. Well, I could start, I guess, with the latest person that I met uh, from the Valley was Richie, Richie Barche, who recently moved here from Brooklyn. <clears throat> and it was just total uh, luck that I happened to stumble upon his his website and my my partner and I Lila Salins had a have a band called Talamana which is sort of uh Indian influence we have a sitar player uh Robert Markey I don't know if you know Bob Markey Bob from oh, yeah. Bob Markey good yeah. friend of ours yeah Oh okay uh so it's it's me and Lila Lila's a singer I'm playing lautar um, Bob's playing sitar and Richie's playing percussion, mostly tabla uh, and, and frame drum. So we were looking for a percussionist. We had, we had all the tracks ready to go and, and, and we were looking for a percussionist and we went through a whole bunch of people and finally Lila just discovered, I had, I had never heard of him or, or knew him before. This is about two years ago. He had just moved here. He had a kid you know, settling down into a suburban life of, you know, Northampton life. And um, sure enough, he came out and, and spent a lot of time rehearsing and and um, laid down these tracks. So we have this, this studio album called Talamana. Also, Richie and I formed a duo, which is uh, sort of, um, it's, it's, it's not sort of, it's totally improvised music. Uh, we don't have any tunes. We just have a general framework and we go out there and play. Uh, we do a, a concert every first Sunday of every month at the Williamsburg Grange. Um, and we're pursuing that, even though Richie is super busy, plays with the Klezmatics and every... He, talk about eclectic, you know, he's, he's the guy, he plays all styles, um, but his, his wheelhouse, as we say, as our, in the biz, his, the wheel, his wheelhouse is jazz, like, like really hardcore bop and, and swing, he's just a magician with that stuff, uh, but at the same time, he can play just about any world music instrument, the tablas and the congas. He's into Brazilian music. Um, so that's, there are, there are other musicians around that I play with. You mentioned Doug Ranieri. Yeah, I did an album with him about 12 years ago, just lautar and drums, and he was a jazz, more of a fusion player. Um, and Tony and, and Derek, so... Um, but back in the day, when I was I was living in New York City, um, that's where I sort of developed my, you know, ability to to like seek out these people. And and you just have to kind of. You asked me about how do you, how do you meet these people? How do you find them? 
that it's kind of a good question, but you just have to be out there talking to people. It's all word of mouth. At least it was back then. Now you can Google anybody and uh, approach them online. But um, yeah, I, I don't really hang out that much at the clubs anymore, being an old guy. But uh, there are ways of uh, connecting. I, I used to teach at Deerfield Academy. Um, I, I recently retired from there. But I, I met a lot of great players at Deerfield Academy who are also teachers. Mm, beautiful. Uh, we're starting to wind down here, but I wanted to ask you about your work as a sound engineer. You've uh, recorded and engineered all 15 albums of yours and also engineered music by artists like Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, Hugh Hopper of Soft Machine, and bluesman Lucky Peterson. How did you get into sound engineering, and how big a part of it of your life is it these days? These days, hardly at all. But for most of my professional life, I was also I also had a, a home studio uh, that was that I would rent out to people. And when I was in Hartford, I had a big space, art space, and that's where I kind of did most of my studio work. That's where I worked with Lucky Peterson. Uh, but I recently did an album with James Montgomery in my studio in um, uh, Hadley. I, I'm no longer there. Um, so as a, a part of my life, it was always there. And the way I got into it was because back in the day, in the 80s, when I was st really starting to seriously record, studio time was so expensive. And I started out with a little eight track machine and, and then expanded into 24 tracks and then computers it was that was a way to record my own stuff uh basically for free and in my own time it's it, you know when you go into a stu professional studio the clock's running and and it's this high pressure thing if you don't get the perfect take you just have to accept it so that's why i got into my own studio recording mm -hmm. so um just, well, jim Mattis, yeah. i'm just wondering where people can hear jim in the upcoming weeks yeah new projects uh, um let's see i don't have my calendar out but i've been doing a lot of solo work uh richie and i just did a gig a couple weeks ago and um the, we don't have one coming up in the near future but i do you know the treehouse brewery sure yes in deerfield says, yeah i play pretty regularly there and uh next saturday i'm playing at the 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 Cena Farm Brewery. I'm doing a lot of breweries. Um, <laughs> well, in the thirty seconds we have left, so people can get a, a, uh, your CDs. Uh, you have a website, right? Yeah. What is yeah. your website? It's jimmatus.com. J i m m a t u s. dot com. Well, great. Ben Siegel, you've done it again. I mean, these incredible talents that we have here in the valley, and you managed to just expose us to them. Yeah, well, there's a lot of them, and Jim Mattis is one of them for sure. He is one of them, and he's networked with so many of them. I want to thank you, Jim, for joining us today. Glenn, thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us today on Talk the Talk. Like Jim Mattis, walk the walk. Mm -hmm. 
Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PV Habitat. 